You're listening to China Africa Talk. Jambo ni Bridget akikuletea kipindi kinachohusiana na China na Africa. Vous écoutez le dialogue sino-africain avec Bridget. Everything China, everything Africa. Olá, você está ouvindo China Africa Talk com Bridget. Sayidati wa sadati marhaban bikum fi al-hawar al-siniy al-arabi ma'a Bridget. Hello, I'm Zanella Butelezi, sitting in for Bridget Mutambira. Welcome to China Africa Talk. In this episode, we are discussing the United Nations COP27 Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. We look at what Africa can expect from these talks. Uh, there are lots of expectations that are generated each time there is a COP, and Africans are always uh, disappointed because what is being promised, sometimes signed. Uh, is not actually implemented or followed. We also talked to a Chinese solar module manufacturer about China's role in supporting the continent's clean energy transition. We've been thinking that's also kind of a mission from our side, from China manufacturers, uh, to bring renewable energy to Africa. The United Nations COP27 Climate Summit got underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt this week amid calls for the world to cut emissions as a matter of urgency. Data shows that global efforts to curb carbon emissions are woefully inadequate to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. African countries are the least responsible for the climate crisis, yet they are the hardest hit by the impacts of the warming planet. At COP27, they are pushing for the wealthy nations to deliver on the promises to fund mitigation and adaptation efforts in developing countries. Will COP27, or the African COP, as it's been dubbed, be the catalyst for the desired action against climate change? Professor Carlos Lopez, chairman of the African Climate Foundation Board and member of the United Nations High-Level Experts Group on the Net Zero Emissions Commitments of Non-State Entities, is attending the COP27 summit in Egypt. He says the move to add to the negotiation agenda the loss and adaptation funding for climate-hit countries is good news for Africa. Because it's taking place in an African country, People are talking about an African COP. So the expectation was that at least in terms of narrative and in terms of the implementation aspects of the current negotiations, the Africans will have a bit of a upper hand because they are hosting, but also because uh, a number of issues that have emerged of late, particularly one that people uh, are very familiar with, which is loss and damage, meaning the losses that have been caused over time by those who polluted the atmosphere being paid to those who have not is now very central. It's the first time that it enters into the discussion. It's the first time it is accepted as a subject with the, the same weight as the issues of mitigation and adaptation, which until now were dominating the negotiations. So it's very good news for Africa. It's also important that in terms of adaptation, the Africans have been able to construct a narrative that is a bit different from the usual, where they are claiming a space to develop as much as to contribute to reduce the reduction of emissions. So you cannot just uh, focus on reduction of emissions when the continent emits so little. 
we have actually to make sure that things like energy access and uh, uh, a safer environment for the Africans also signifies them being part of the solution, not just being the victims until now of what uh, we have done to the climate. You are talking about um, Africans presenting their case this time around. The question would be, are they being heard though? Do you get the sense that what Africans are presenting to other leaders, other world leaders, especially the developed um, nations, is being taken into consideration and being seriously considered as uh, we look for action, tangible action in addressing the serious issues that we are seeing right now in the Horn of Africa. You can see droughts. We've seen flooding in uh, Nigeria, Madagascar and other parts of uh, the region, which is Africa. So are we being heard as Africans as we present our case this time around? I think uh, uh, if you ask uh, uh, in terms of discourse, whether we are being heard, yes, we are. But in terms of practicalities, you are absolutely right. There is reason for skepticism. Because up to now, when we look into what climate financing has been, it's a, a mix of over-promising and under-delivering. Uh, there are lots of expectations that are generated each time there is a COP. And Africans are always uh, disappointed because what is being promised, sometimes signed, uh, is not actually implemented or followed. And it is important that the Africans just take whatever they are able to obtain through negotiations to the next level. And the next level is to be much more harsher and uh, exercise more agency in making clear that they have a carbon credit because we have not benefited from the uh, different development waves that have created the problem. And yet we were the provider of commodities, we are provided of raw materials. Our nature has contributed for others' development. And now we are, as you rightly pointed out, suffering more than most in terms of extreme weather uh, phenomena. So it is very important that we, we just don't take for granted whatever is obtained in rhetorical terms. And reports suggest that renewable energy is one of the solutions in dealing with the challenges that are posed by climate change. I mean, how is clean energy or energy evolving on the continent right now? How do you see it? Well, there are no solutions really for the energy transition from a scientific point of view without the participation of Africa. Uh, uh, whether you talk about uh, the conventional renewable energies like solar and wind, or you talk about the more sophisticated developments like green hydrogen or ammonia, uh, every single solution requires Africa because we have the largest potential on each one of these different elements. And therefore, Africa should not be treated like it has been in the past as just a provider of raw materials without value addition. It has to be something that powers Africa's own economic transformation. So uh, until now, we have been always uh, left behind. And it's very interesting that most of the discussions, even about strategic minerals that are essential for the technological revolutions that we are living uh, and that are in, in their vast majority concentrated in Africa, are being treated as something that we can export to get some money. 
Uh, in fact, the issue is not about that. The issue should be about how do we empower our own industrialization and transformation. And this is a very different equation. And unfortunately, up to now, for this more ambitious agenda, there is no financing that is adequate. And you talk about empowering our own industrialization. There's also this question of how does Africa balance its developmental needs uh, with you know, the need to stay committed to the climate change um, commitments that have been made. How do we get there? Well, uh, the narrative about us being able to do both, uh, grow and be sustainable, is now uh, demonstrated with facts. Uh, I think uh, uh, this decoupling has occurred. We don't need to be a big emitter or contribute to a large carbon footprint uh, because we need to develop. Today we can do both. We can uh, leapfrog to the latest technologies that are becoming more and more carbon neutral and much more efficient and resilient. So Africans, it's really in their interest to be at the forefront of this battle because they are latecomers to most of these different aspects, particularly industrialization. And it's really not a very good bet to be uh, investing on technologies that are going to be outdated. Whereas others will have to retrofit and retrofitting is much more costly if you think of it than actually leapfrogging directly into the latest. And that's what we have to have as a value proposition. How do we then protect ourselves from being victims of uh, dumping uh, as some people fear this might happen? Through regulation and through uh, being a bit more uh, uh, clear in terms of uh, creating opportunities for uh, uh, intra-African market. Let's take, for example, automotives. We are moving into electric vehicles and we are moving into forms of mobility that are going to allow Africans also to leapfrog. Uh, it's already happening in countries like Togo and Benin. You know, most of the motorcycles are becoming electric and so on and so forth. So what we need is really to impede, for instance, imports of used goods, particularly uh, uh, automotives and other equipment that is outdated and very heavy on carbon. But we also need to build new industries, and that's a, a chance and an opportunity for green industrialization. We can have uh, a number of contributions that are more than just for Africa, for the world. Uh, take the example of Gabon, that has now the first ever in the world completely uh, certified environmental industrial park, um, uh, and it's now for mostly processing of wood. Uh, it, this used to be something that Cabong will do uh, uh, without any transformation. Now they have a huge value addition because they are processing uh, wood and they are doing it with uh, the highest uh, environmental standards. So this is, this is the way to go. Uh, we, we, we have to do it through regulation. We have to impose policies in our trade and other uh, very important negotiations that protect these opportunities for Africa. Earlier you mentioned the issue of funding in supporting Africa's uh, climate action. 
Uh, countries this time around showing interest in actually coming forth with the promises that they made and actually making good on these promises, especially the developed countries. Do you see that happening? No, it's not uh, coming close to, to the promises. Uh, if you take into account the different waves of promises, be it uh, the Global Environment Fund, you know, programs for Africa, the Green Fund, now the 100 billion that have been promised in the Paris uh, uh, Agreement. If you, if you count all these different tracks uh, in terms of what has been the promise and accumulated deficit of what has not been delivered, we are talking about close to $1 trillion of promises that have not been fulfilled. So this is huge. And obviously Africans have a very strong reason to be upset and, and to claim that, you know, a lot of these discussions are not going anywhere. And, you know, the urgency of having to diminish uh, the greenhouse uh, gas emissions is, is there. You know, we, we have uh, projections that tell us that we are already at a tipping point. So we really need to accelerate uh, the access to finance uh, for the African countries in particular, because it is proven that they are the ones that are uh, lagging behind all the other regions in terms of access. We saw Germany, France, the UK, the United States and the European Union um, signing a deal with South Africa. This deal was initiated in Glasgow last year uh, and it amounted to about 8.5 billion US dollars. Do you see this as something that will get the ball rolling and get other similar deals in terms of, you know, trying to wane off or stop the reliance on coal and other fossil fuels in Africa? Well, by far, this is the most advanced, sophisticated, granular, just energy transition partnership ever. Uh, so South Africans have to be congratulated for being able to put something that is now becoming a bit of a reference in terms of how you can do these transitions by bringing the people and nature along. It's not just about the economics. It's also about making sure that those who depend on fossil fuels and uh, a structure that uh, is to be replaced uh, are going to benefit from this uh, change and are going to be protected during the transition. And I think uh, because uh, it is now accepted uh, by all different partners as the model, uh, I'm very hopeful that it will be properly funded and will probably uh, be uh, used as a template for other middle-income countries to, to put together similar uh, partnerships. But this being said, it's a partnership for uh, a middle-income type of economy. A lot of the countries in Africa are least developed and they don't have the same characteristics as South Africa. So they will fight a much more harder battle to try to get funds for adaptation than uh, South Africa, which is basically about mitigation. Uh, you know, when it, when it comes to adaptation, the metrics are very different. And it's very difficult actually to prove what you are actually contributing towards because it's basically contributing to climate, not to specifics like in mitigation. So it's much more harder and I think uh, uh, because the poorest countries depend much more on adaptation, they don't have much to mitigate because they are not emitting, uh, it, it's, a, it's a different battle.
there is this current issue of the energy crisis that is affecting many countries around the world. And uh, we've seen in Europe a number of countries such as um, Germany and France going back to using coal because of this crisis. I'm wondering what's your view on what's developing as well as this energy crisis, its impact on uh, climate commitments. I think the African public opinion and the African leaders are pretty upset with this double talk. Uh, on one hand, you know, uh, some countries that have already uh, quite significant uh, emissions uh, going back to use uh, fossil fuels that they have just recently, after the pandemic, in fact, proclaimed as uh, something to be replaced and at the same time try to uh, influence the Africans to not have choices that are, you know, basically necessary in terms of their own uh, problems, which are mostly on energy access. So you have this uh, double talk. For energy security, it's fine. For energy access, no, don't do it. And this is obviously not acceptable. And I think uh, there is a lot of pushback in the part of the Africans. And this pushback, if you ask my uh, opinion, should go in the direction of increase the financing for renewables. Uh, make sure that we don't have two choices, but rather just one, renewables, because it's the one that is the best funded and it's the one that is easy to access in terms of uh, financing. What role do you think countries like China, who have taken major steps in the area of uh, renewable energy and other related um, projects, what role do you think they can play in assisting Africa to accelerate its shift from fossil fuels to clean energy or other areas of uh, climate change? Fortunately, uh, the collaboration between Africa and China is so strong and China is so developed in some of these technologies, particularly uh, solar, that it is uh, really an opportunity for strong links. Uh, so we'll have to have a joint plan on how to make sure that part of the uh, collaboration and the partnerships that exist between Africa and China are going to also be marked by climate action. How optimistic are you about the outcomes of this COP27? Do you see anything positive that will benefit Africa? I, I don't think it is a COP that is going to produce major results, but it's a COP that is going to change the narrative, that is going to allow Africans to have a different uh, voice in these discussions. And that has already been seen by the inclusion of loss and damage. Uh, in a much more central role than before. This was not obvious just a few weeks back because there was a lot of pushback on the part of richer countries to include it in the agenda. So I think uh, uh, that's, that's as much as you can get from a COP uh, at a time where the geopolitics are the ones we know with a lot of tension and with difficulties that come from the pandemic where we have seen rather than solidarity, a lot of greed. And, and, and therefore, I think under the circumstances, you know, the, we have to lower the expectations and we have to uh, be celebrating just the fact that we can obtain certain gains on the margins. That was Professor Carlos Lopez, chairman of the African Climate Foundation Board and member of the United Nations High-Level Experts Group on the Net Zero Emissions Commitments of Non-State Entities.
Now moving on, about 600 million people are said to be without electricity in Africa and nearly a billion of others are still relying on fossil fuels for cooking. Xing Yabin, vice president of Tales Solar, talks about the role of Chinese companies in supporting Africa's renewable energy transition. What kind of opportunities are you seeing in Africa in the field of renewable energy? In Africa, the people really need energy. Most of the countries in Africa, the lack of electricity, the people really need it. Uh, so we think, we think that's a kind of a mission from our side, from China manufacturers, uh, to bring renewable energy to Africa. Actually, for Chinese manufacturers, we started working in Africa for many years. Uh, we see the market is small, small but it's, it started to grow up. I understand you have um, cooperated with um, Art Solar in operating a 325-megawatt uh, PV module facility in South Africa. What's the significance of uh, such partnerships? Uh, so as, as we know, you know, South Africa has a very good industry foundations, uh, the education levels, and also the skills of the workers. I'm thinking still at the top of the in uh, at the top of the countries in Africa. In general, the uh, economy uh, is uh, I think is an uh, it's still good. It's still one of the good, one of the best in Africa. So in Africa, uh, so in the the general environment in uh, South Africa, uh, we think is good for us to build for factory over there. It not only help us to to meet the South Africa South African countries domestic requirements. But also, it will give us opportunities so we can use South Africa as our base to support other countries. And how can they help you in that area? Uh, right now, in South Africa, the government, they have uh, several big projects undergoing. And for all those projects, they have a domestic content requirements, which means uh, for the, the whole project, you, you should have some, some percentage that came from uh, South Africa. Mode, uh, solar mode is one of the important components. So that's the uh, main motivation for us to uh, work in South Africa. On the other hand, as the Art Solar, uh, that company, they, uh, they, were, uh, they had been in South Africa for a while to produce solar modules. They have a good, uh, good management team. Uh, I met their management team in, uh, in London two weeks ago. And they also have a very uh, good educated workers over there. Currently, we have our people in their factory to help them improve their uh, production capability uh, to improve their quality control process. Our cooperation with Art Solar, uh, we, are, we are going to have a great success. And in somehow, uh, it could be a kind of model for other companies to go to Africa. Normally, see, uh, when we, we talk about it to build factory uh, South Africa, we always think maybe the, such a for the big company, maybe we can build our own factory 100% by us. But from, uh, uh, from, from the experience work with Art Solar, we see uh, to partner with local companies to share the values, to share the profits, and uh, to share the risks. And that's a, a very reasonable solution. That could help us to make, more, make success more smoothly and quickly. What kind of support have you received? And do you expect other countries uh, in Africa to provide support for such projects that you have started in countries like South Africa going forward? The, um, the main support, uh, we still need the local government. They have a, 
uh, they, they have motivation to develop a renewable energy projects, which means they have a cut off uh, a policy of support for renewable energies. And that's, uh, that's very important because if uh, you see in South Africa, the government, they, they have uh, their own uh, cut off uh, PPA project, power purchase agreement so, uh, arrangement. So that's where uh, lays the big, some of the biggest uh, developers and, uh, and the project owners and the EPC companies to build a project is going to that that means uh, that we, if if they have purchased over there from manufacturer side definitely we have a, we can see we have a security once we have a factory our product our product, our product could be could have a, could be used in locally and what role do states subsidies play in mobilizing projects and getting them on the ground and working in terms of ensuring that you know the targets that have been set with regards to rolling out renewable energy are met. How important are subsidies? I, the subsidy, I mean, that's for the project itself and not for the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the manufacturer, actually, we don't need any subsidies because, you see, if they give a subsidy such as what they're doing in, for example, in U.S., we have RTC, right, mm-hmm. tax credit. And, uh, and in some other countries, the government maybe give a, give a couple of cents. For the solar projects and uh, and more, uh, also uh, in some other countries they have a called FIT program, FIT FIT program. So the government actually they don't need to do too much. They just give some policy to allow the solar project to get connected with the local grid, with the with their with the grid. If possible, they give cut off a subsidy that that for the project side and for the manufacturer. First speaking. If they have subsidy, it's good. If they don't have it, doesn't matter. The most important thing is the solar project itself need have uh, should have some support from government. Something that is good news for the industry and also for developing countries that are trying to speed up the process of rolling out renewable energy. The issue of uh, pricing. It seems like um, material is getting cheaper in the markets. What's your view on this and how will this speed up the process of rolling out renewables in countries that are developing, especially in Africa, which is one of the areas or the regions that you are working in? The raw material in the last year got high and, and also the shipping costs got crazy, crazy last year. But since this year, the shipping cost came back to normal. For the raw material price is is keeping decreasing. We seen a without some uh, special case happened, the the overall the raw the cost will keep dropping. That's for sure. At the same time, the technology is get developed. The overall cost to make to generate one one kilowatt hour powers should be get cheaper and cheaper. However, we see there's lots of uncertainty in this world. You see the the war between Ukraine and Russia, that's caused uh, energy leakage for in European market. So that will make the the solar module price and everything everything get expensive in Europe for renewable energies. And uh, so you know for US they have uh, a they have cut off uh, policies regarding China part materials and that drove the US solar module price and everything actually not solar module. Battery, inverter, rank, everything, and uh, price uh, increase a lot. To help the price get go back to normal, even we uh, make the the overall investment for renew, renew, renewable energy 
keep going down. We need a, we need to have a peaceful world. We need a, we still need a, the, the the whole world can move move to the direction of what we call globalizations. Otherwise, we see even the material raw material keep dropping. The supply and the requirements still are not balanced. Today, the way to be in is we have a we lots of the lots of uncertainty came out from the uh, relationship between countries and countries, that is that a big impact for us. So how important is the partnership between China and Africa in, in terms of working together on climate issues? I think uh, a, for history, the relationship between China and Africa is always very good. And uh, based on the current uh, relationship between countries and countries, China have to look for opportunities in Africa to keep support African market. So I, I work with Africa, <coughs> South Africa, com- Africa company to put a facility over there. I think it's going to become more and more popular. Uh, South Africa is one, one of our uh, overseas uh, manufacturer partners. We are still looking for some other opportunities in North Africa also. We see uh, the more and more Chinese companies uh, that are going to uh, look for opportunity in uh, Africa. That's it for this episode, and let me thank my guests, Professor Carlos Lopez, Chairman of the African Climate Foundation Board and member of the United Nations High-Level Experts Group on the Net Zero Emissions Commitments of Non-State Entities, and Xing Yabin, Vice President of Sun Solar. Thank you for listening, and please do join us again on our next episode.